Hello everyone, this is Chuck Clough from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. Meet Mickey Hart, part philosopher, scientist, shaman, and passionate drummer. Mickey and the Grateful Dead have offered up the groove and the melody for some of the most iconic themes of our generation. Mickey is a musicologist, a student of polyrhythms, and a believer in the connections we all have to rhythm. He has two Grammys and has collaborated with a Nobel Prize in Physics winner, stem cell researchers, and neuroscientists, including the late, great Oliver Sacks. Mickey is a true supporter of music therapy and the mechanisms behind the healing power of music for not only the injured or neurologically changed, but for the well-being of people from all cultures. In 1967, he was introduced to the newly formed Grateful Dead by drummer Bill Kreutzmann, and the big bang of the jam band was formed with Mr. Jerry Garcia at the helm. His telepathic relationship on and off the stage with band members old and new has transcended decades, leading Mickey to the latest chapter, bringing three generations of fans together for this year's tour with Dead and Company. This is part one of our conversation with Mickey Hart, recorded at his hotel in Boston, Massachusetts. Cannabis is my plan of, of choice. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so the psychoactive effect of cannabis and the visions that you get on cannabis go so far back, and also the healing power. We know at 12,000 B.C., uh, shaman were using uh, cannabis, or opium, but mostly cannabis, uh, for vision quests. Pythagoras, classic, 500 BC. How did Pythagoras hear the sonorities of the heavens? He claimed they could hear the sonorities of the heavens, and he gave numerical equation to all of the revolving orbs. And, and you know, I'm a real Pythagoras fan, or a student. All these years, I couldn't figure out because nobody can hear the sonorities, and he guessed correctly. Of course, using a mono monochord, finding the octave, the third, the fifth, the seventh, and he gave those equations to the heavens, and it worked. I mean, Einstein proved it. Every it's a well-known fact that the universe works in numerical equations, just very much like music. He called it the music of the spheres, or music of universalis. But now I know. Pythagoras used cannabis. So, so, so that was it, part of that journey, you think, that he actually translated some of the sonic mythic, power of the universe into uh, octaves? That's and, what, well, he was the father of the science of music. You should know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so he gave meaning and understanding to the revolving orbs. I th- you know, I thought it was a mystical flight, which it was. That's how he did it. It, just until recently, I was bewildered by it. You know, I just thought it was one of those folk tales. You know, yeah. Pythagoras didn't really... It was written mostly... Mostly his history was written by his disciples and stuff. He didn't... His writings were lost, mostly. Yeah, so that was really an interesting fact. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of plants, we're looking over at the uh, amazing view out there at Boston. We want to welcome you to Boston. Thank you very much. Uh, I love, I love yeah, your chowder. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you a lot of people say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, baby, I love your chowder. You've gotten you've gotten here at a uh, kind of a sad time. We lost Game Seven. I don't know if you watched the game at all. At Celtics, uh, the Celtics well, game. I, I, I see the game differently. Yeah. Oh, do you? Yes, I'm on the other side. Are you now? Yeah. Come on, now you are a good friend of Bill Walton. I know right. the man very well. You know well. the man yes, very well? Yes, indeed. I would I, say he's one of my best friends. Oh, well, I mean, you're a lucky man because he seems like a I fantastic guy. I am. He's a very guy. A classy guy, just a wonderful friend for 
I don't know how many years, 35, 40 years. Well, I just watched a documentary about the 86 Celtics where he talks about, they're talking to Kevin McHale and Danny Ainge. Kevin Kevin and and I almost went to jail one night. (laughs) (laughs) Now, those guys can drink beer. Yeah, they used to drink a lot. I mean, they do six to one. Yeah, they they're would, so big after a game. Right, that's what know? they would do. They they'd open a beer after. It's the lucky game. we left at different times. But they tell a story in the documentary about how Bill grabs all the Celtics and he just walked up to the back door of the auditorium, knocks on the door. Some guy opens it up. It's like tell him Bill's here, and then just everyone went in and it was their, it was their first dead concert and it was a big part of the of the documentary and I thought was it was it? fascinating. Was it? No. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's it's really cool. And they were like, you know, Danny Ainge. You know, Danny Ainge is a pretty straight-laced guy. He seems yeah. like a great guy. He's, he's Mormon, good. I think, so he doesn't drink at all. And he was like, you know, I I didn't get it, but I got that they got it. They'd never seen a Dead concert or heard the music before. But, uh, yeah, it was a big it was a big. Yeah, Larry guy. Bird came back a lot. You know, well, I mean, was like they weren't old deadheads. 86, I think. Yeah. They weren't old deadheads, but they were. Bill was turning up onto something of a great passion, a great love of his. So they just went along with it, but some of them came back. But Bill, I've never, I've never met anybody who loved the band more than Bill. I mean, the music. Since you know, he was I mean, fifteen, he said. I think it was uh, right after they uh, he won Portland. What, what year was that? Uh, so that it was, was right before. The, what se- year was late seventies? Is that when he went in with Portland? I can't remember, probably. And I, it was a funny thing how I spotted Bill. He, you know, he just came from UCLA. UCLA was picked by Portland, you know, the worst team in the league. He was the first pick. And so he went to Portland. And he was in the audience. And I asked my equipment man, I said, why is everybody sitting down? Yeah. Nobody sits down at a Grateful Dead concert. You're right. And, and he looked up. He said, they're not sitting down. And I, they got a seven I said, out look there. out there. Bill's standing and, and, up. And, and, um, and he said, oh, no, no. That's the basketball player, Bill Walton. I said, Bill Walton? I have watched all those college games. Oh, yeah. He never lost a college game he started. Really? And I said, bring him to me and get him well, back here. And that's where it started. Not only is he seven feet tall, but he's, he he's got the red hair. And I think back then he had like the Abe. <laughs> not a, anymore, but yeah. He, he had the Abe Lincoln going on, too. Yes, so he, he was did. a unique-looking right. guy. He had the Abe Lincoln going on. Yeah. So, I mean, that's fantastic. I and he's really, really healthy now. Yeah. And he gets up 4 o'clock every morning, really? goes to the pool at YMCA, and he works out. Which is great, because those guys Pedals a bike. So one bodies. time I went to his house, funny Bill Walton story, went, went to his house in, in San Diego, and he said on the phone, he said, yeah, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out riding, biking, just give me a call when I get there. And I'll, you know, I said, okay, cool. So I went to his house, called him. I said, Bill, I'm here. He said, okay, I'm turning around. And then I stayed there for, like for hours, you know, and Bill's always on time. And he walked in an hour or two later, so whatever, and I said, where have you been? He said, I was like 100 miles away when you called me. <laughs> so this guy goes, you know, he's 50, 100 miles is no big thing to Bill Walton. And his bike is, you know, his pedals are deep, you know. Yeah. And I built him a drum set, a seven-foot version of a real drum set. He plays. Does he play? Oh, Bill plays. In his living room. You got to tell him about Wick. He has a, in his living room is a setup just like mine with the big drums and everything. And after dinner we play, before dinner we play. Is his kit set up in sort of a, a regular person's size, like to sit? Or is it just... No, his, it, I, mean, no, I can't imagine. Everything is giant. His kids are giant. <laughs> They're all really? over 6'6". Six, six. So the table is large. Everything is... The chairs are large. I have to have a pillow to, 
sit at the table. Yeah. Well, he, he made a chair for me, so I, I can <laughs> I can sit there in like a normal. But the chair, table's way up. Right. In the land of giants. giants. The doors. Bring out the Mickey's roof, chair. I mean, the ceilings. Everything is just like a group of giants live here. Uh. <laughs> well, we've we've That's talked right. on this show on the podcast before about the connection of sports it doesn't have to be professional but with the team playing reading off each other with music and there's such i don't have to tell you i mean there's such a connection there oh my Um, god he sees the band just as a a team going down the uh down the court making decisions passing off the ball and all that stuff and the communication of it is the same as in music instantaneously within milliseconds we make decisions just like he does and he he, when he puts the, the ball through the basket that is music to him. He calls it string music. Mm-hmm. Really is. Mm-hmm. Maria's getting a lot of shout yeah, outs here. Yeah, a lot of this Berkeley, yeah. huh? We're going to start calling you Berkeley. I yeah, love yeah, it. Berkeley, yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, so when you think about that communication aspect, it brings me to a lot of things about the dead and about what, you know the, your career and what you've been able to do with communication. It also, I think, about two drummers as well. And what's that language like? Well, it's, you might call it a secret language because only Bill and I speak it. We're the, we're the only two uh, <laughs> left <laughs> that speak this language. Right. But we pass it to other people who understand us. You know, but we have a primary rhythm thing going, a kind of conversation that we have. And once we agree on the groove and, and everything about it, then we give it to the front line and we pass it around. We're very, very giving in our, in our right. if you understand. Right. And, but yeah, but we, we have a kind of tied at the heart. You know, you have to, to do two drumming things. You have to really, it's beyond expertise. It's more compassion and sharing. Because and that's the thing about rhythm is that it's not only the connection, like we said, with a team, with going for the basket, and you have your musical line, you have your communication, but there's something about that inherent beat that I know you know a lot you about. You want to know what it is? What is it? It's the rhythm, stupid. <laughs> That's what it's about. It's that's a it. rhythm, stupid. Yeah. It's really, that's what I, on a molecular level, on an atomic level, micro level, macro level, anybody who thinks about anything that's really important has to go through rhythm. And vibration is the essential uh, ingredient of all life. So uh, vibrations, uh, rhythms are just uh, formed, uh, ordered vibrations, you know, in patterns. Uh, so it's all about the rhythm of things. It's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. How would you like to join us in creating great conversations that inspire and connect? Patreon is a membership platform that provides a way for creators like us to build relationships and provide exclusive experiences to subscribers or patrons. We have been self-financed since we got off the ground in June of 2016, but in order to continue to fully invest all we can in each episode, we need your patronage. For more information, please go to patreon.com forward slash above the basement. I mean, other than being a drummer, you, you also, you went to the Library of Congress and you pulled together all these old recordings of these indigenous people whose rhythms and their beats that, that were recorded in the field could have been gone forever if, if you hadn't pulled them. You had said, I think there was 80 hours of well, I bring of them stuff. to light. I bring them from the, uh, out from the, uh, the stacks. Is that, yeah. is that when this kind of journey began for you, other than you know, being a drummer, of finding where no, that no, rhythm no, comes no. from? No, 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 no. It didn't happen because I was a drummer. It started when I was about five or six years old, and my mother, she had inherited a Count Basie and Duke Ellington collection of 33s. And um, 
in the middle of those of the collection were some pygmy recordings from the Aturi rainforest in the Congo. And that's where my ear went, and all I could listen to was pygmies for years. I just foraged with them and became one of them. And that's where my taste for the music, uh, the world's music, started. That was the uh, the beginning of it. I love Count Basie, I love Ellington. I wanted to push the Count Basie band. That was my big thing. I wanted to be like Gene Krupa. It was my, it's, I mean, a long way from Gene Krupa now, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I took a little different path than Gene. But That's he was, okay. He, he, was my, he, was my, he was my idol. Uh, but no, it started with the indigenous musics of uh, the rainforest. In New York in that time, there was a lot of Latin music, music from the, from Haiti and Puerto Rico and Cuba, by way of New Orleans up to the river. It had reached uh, Mississippi, had reached uh, Chicago, New York, points east, south, northwest, and so that new uh, gumbo of Latin powerful trance rhythms were embodied in the new what they call salsa now. You know, it was where Latin music met the streets of New York or the cosmopolitan uh, areas, and it turned into, it was about the clave, C-L-A-V-E, which is the key to all Latin music. You know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the key, and that's the backbeat. That's where the backbeat came from. We inherited from the West African cultures of Nigeria and so forth. Slave trade brought it to, down through Bahia, through Brazil, through Central America, Haiti, and the 1700s, free slave revolt. Everybody went to all the New Orleans and then Congo Square and Lake Pontchartrain, where they were allowed to practice their rituals on a Sunday, but observed, because they took their instruments away. Nice folks. And, but right. they allowed them to be observed on one day a week. The upper-class whites came and saw it as sort of a carnival thing. They looked at these, these folks going into, into trance and so forth. But these, this is how we got our music, American-based music, through New Orleans and through the powerful rhythms of uh, Nigeria. Isn't that how the actual drum set came together, too? Not really. The drum set really was a contraption. Yeah. And it, it came out of the uh, silent movies because they called them pit drummers. They had to make sound for the silent movies. You know, you see a horse, wood blocks. Okay, wood blocks from Korea. Uh, oh, yes, they had a hit of, okay, we'll take a symbol from Turkey. Okay, uh, we took different instruments from different cultures and made it into a contraption and we played it to silent movies. That's the origin of the, uh, the traps. The yeah, drums. I, it's a great American, it's one of our greatest in inventions, by the way. One of our musical inventions, the trap set, American. Even though we stole it from every other culture on the planet. Right. It was a gumbo, Just like, like you said. It gave the ability for one person to play all these different things. One on many, yeah. exactly. And that's what was different. One on many, instead of many on one, one on many. Yeah. 
mentioned music universalis from Pythagoras, but I, I saw somewhere that there's this really interesting sonic visual experience that you got happening recently pre, yeah. pre Dead and Company. No, I just Learning. did it actually did a few it months ago. Yeah. It was at the Hayden Planetarium. Right. Yeah. Is that, I think that's what yeah, you're yeah, referring yeah. to. Yeah. I traced the history of the groove from the beginning of time and space, from 13.8 billion years ago to the present. That was beat one, the Big Bang, they call it, the singularity. That's where the groove began. That's where the rhythm began. So as I was researching the origin of the percussion, I went back to the Paleolithic, and I said, if that was the last icons I could find, the last historical records. Mother goddess cultures, women, first drummers. Uh, old Europe, ancient Europe. Um, and then uh, I wonder, where did they get it? And I started thinking, of course, it had to start with the singularity. And that was the program. In 30 minutes, I took you 13.8 billion years, and I brought you back safely. <laughs> And so that was a Hayden. Yeah. Screw you, Disney. Look at yeah. I just did. No, no, this yeah. is the real story. <laughs> no, it was a blast, especially doing it in the dome. You know, at the Hayden Planetarium when I was a kid. My grandmother took me there, and that's where, that was like, that's that, the Taj Mahal That's me. a full circle trip for you, I would imagine. And Literally. I had subwoofers going down to 15 cycles. I was driving that planetarium at 15 cycles. So people were feeling it in their chest. They were feeling it not only in their chest, in yeah. their eyeballs. Yeah. In their ear balls. And not only that, but there was your brain floating above them. And my they... brain was there. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Uh, we called it glass brain. Yeah. Dr. Gaza- Adam Ghazali MRI'd my brain, and you were able, you, you know, and you were able to uh, fly through. And I was using my brain, my brainwave signals to play the score of my brain, even though it wasn't in real time, it was more entertainment, but it was still, the symbolism of it was powerful. What Adam Ghazali is doing is pretty remarkable. We actually, so we met briefly. At you're in, you're the in Institute. neuroscience. You're in neuroscience. Yeah, I'm, 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 in the, I'm in the field. I'm in rehabilitation medicine and brain injury and a recovery. I see. And Alzheimer's, yes. Parkinson's, yes, I read stroke. Paper, yes. We met briefly with Dan Levitan. Um, oh, at, that at thing. Soho. I was supposed to give him that achievement award or something, but I couldn't stay and I had to leave or something. I was supposed to give him the award. Oh, I don't think but, I stayed at the end either. Yeah, actually. I didn't stay. <laughs> I, oh, I, had it was somebody, I had Connie Tomano give him the award. You never got yeah. the award, maybe? I don't Dan know. Levin. And Connie's lovely. You've met Connie. Uh, Actually, she's Institute of Neurological Function. Institute of Neurologic Function so Connie, in the Bronx. Connie with Oliver briefly. Sachs. That's where Oliver. Oliver Sachs. Oliver's a good friend. So I'm right I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm very sorry. It's two years now, right? I think it's got to be at least two years. So Oliver Sacks, more maybe I think, one of the fathers of you know the new fathers of music Clinical, and medicine, um, yeah. prolific guy. And Connie is a music therapist that worked with Oliver back in the day in the '80s. And you're on the board of the the Institute for Neurological Function. Correct. I worked there quite a bit with Oliver and with Connie, really? and had a lot of adventures with Oliver and Connie too. Um, it's fascinating. That was really where I started working with the Alzheimer's. Yeah. folks was uh, through Connie and through Oliver. Oliver, he wrote about it in one of his books. He brought this, he had this um, patient whose clock stopped in about 1969, I think. I asked Oliver to come to this concert, so he brought one of his patients with him, and mm. he was in a wheelchair, I think, and he heard the band, and he hadn't spoken for years, 15 years, 20 years. This is Music Never Stopped. That's right. It was, made this a movie, movie of it. Yeah. And he said, it's the Grateful Dead, but where's Pigpen? And Pigpen had died 
in the 70s. And so he rec he recognizes, and he didn't recognize the songs that we wrote af after his clock stopped. And he wondered where Pigpen was. And it, it was fascinating. It was really an amazing thing. And he was speaking and everything. And and uh, that's exactly, Oliver made note of that. No, it's true. And like he was stopped in 1969, and his new memories with his brain injury were very altered and very impaired. Mm -hmm. But I believe when Touch of Grey played, this was the modern dead at that time. What was that? 87. 87. Yeah. So Touch of Grey played, and at least in the movie, he comes alive. But he does it in a different way. He was alive, but I think he didn't... He wasn't transmitted back to the 70s. But there's something about the music that still stayed almost mm -hmm. That's right. as medicine. Music is medicine. For him. For us. Well, right. It's not just for the, uh, for the people who have impaired functions. It's right. for people who, have, who are healthy as well. I mean, music is all about rhythm. And that's what connects the broken pathways. And even at a microscopic level, which is something you and... Is it Adam or who, who have you worked with on a microscopic level? Some of the work with stem cells. Oh, Deepak at the um, what institute in San Francisco. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, UCLA. I can't remember. Yeah, I worked with stem cells. Got, uh, I took some readings from the stem cells. And uh, yeah, I played them. And DNA and so forth. When we started talking about plants, that was one of the things that I thought of. It's pretty fascinating that... At a micro microscopic level, there are rhythms of things. I just don't understand. I, I, I need to understand What's it more. What's there not to understand? <laughs> really? Teach I mean, us. they're Professor, alive. Professor Hart. They're alive. Photosynthesis is a very active process, just like any other process that gives life, and that is a rhythmic stimuli. So there are healthy rhythms, and when a plant is healthy or a human is healthy, they have good rhythms. They have yeah. hearts functioning, the lungs are pumping, they eat well, they sleep well, they don't do a lot of drugs, they don't party late, and they're healthy, <laughs> you know? And yeah. that is all about the rhythm of things. So it stands to reason yeah. that it would regenerate cells and it would also reconnect, you know, and allow the synapses to do their thing. It's so fascinating because now we're in this 2018, we can look at this stuff, we could study it. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? But just in the infancy anyway. So. You actually study your your brain, seeing the, I mean, I, it's seeing those colors going through and you see the it synapses connect there with each other. hanging in space in color. <laughs> I mean, that's... And I looked at it, I said... surreal. It's me. It's me, you know? Uh, and I was like, the first one we did was at the, uh, we did a keynote for AARP, I think, and it, the screen was like 60 feet, both sides of us, and I looked over and I go, that's my brain hanging in space. Like I said, I told Adam, I said, uh, I said, it's grotesque, but handsome somehow. <laughs> you know, I mean, Picasso, Renoir, Monet, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I saw the brain. And Mickey Hart. Yeah, there you go. It's a beautiful thing. And it's amazing. It's a super organism. Right up there with the ants, I might add. Not quite. But, of course, the ants are the most sophisticated, complex creatures we know. Read E.O. Wilson. Uh, he wrote two books, one on ants and one on superorganism. He will tell you everything about the hierarchy of rhythm and so forth. Didn't he speak at the Thoreau Institute? Who? I think E.O. Wilson. Remember yes. we were talking about that? Yes, yeah. he did. We yeah. talked with Don Henley about that guy because they, uh, they connected. I met him. Yeah. We had a nice conversation. We talked about ants, of course, which is a favorite subject of his and mine. You know, We were talking about do the ants live? They live in the now. They live in the no They live in the moment. 
And so we were talking about that. Now the ants, they do everything except one thing. They don't dance, they dance, ants dance. They do everything, but they don't have any fun. That's one of the things we were talking about. No fun, ants don't have fun. Work all the time. Ramu. Did I pronounce it right? Ramu. Ramu. Random Access Musical Universe. It's a, a sound droid, my sound droid, my, um, my robot, my bot. And where I have all of my pet sounds and all of the sounds that I've, you know, I've collected in, over the years of the natural world and anything I, my imagination can conjure. And I put it there and I can make any combination. I could be a, I could be a storm out at sea. I could be in Bali. You know, I could be any place. Uh, Does it include the beam? Does it include the beam? Is the monochord, the Pythagorean monochord? That's part of the. That's, that's part, part of, the of Ramu. Ramu. That's that's because that's fascinating. The string, the string part of Ramu, the yeah. vibratory uh, string. Because how, how many strings are there? Twelve. There's twelve, but they're all the same. All the same note, note monochord. But I can change the pitch of them all by a touch of a button. I can be in D, which is my favorite key. <laughs> I, I bet you that Pythagoras, that was his favorite key, too, for some reason. It's very heroic and everything. But I have, I have a way of moving it around the scales, the whole chromatic scale. So what? Ramu is connected... Ramu. Ramu? Ramu. 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 Is connected to the monochord. Correct. It is part of it. But the Ramu can be... It's a digital. Ramu is the like digital the, version of... It's mostly the digital right. data. Uh, the beam is analog. Right. right. But so it goes through take, digital processing. Can you take the monochord and process? You can do the reverse, right? Oh, yeah. That's the fun part of it. That's, you know, I mean, the monochord is only so interesting. But when you take it and you put it through, you know, some sophisticated circuitry, you've got music unborn. You've got anything your imagination and beyond can conjure. Well, you say it's not interesting, but I'm fascinated by it because, at first, it's a very low tone. You say, I've, I think you said Some of it is that, low. That I, I, of course, made very sophisticated pickups so I can go very high with it. Yeah. But, but yes, it's basically a bass. It operates in the lower regions, the lower chakras. Yeah. I think you also say it's almost like a drone instrument. It is a drone. Yeah. Monochord is a drone instrument. It's the ohm. It signifies the uh, cosmic low end of the that, universe. Right. They say it's, uh, it's not, I believe the science on it, it says that that cosmic low end is uh, 52 octaves below middle C. Oh, really? Brought into our hearing, it's a B flat. Yeah, that, you know, the hum. You know, this, yeah. the earth is a bell. It rings. You know, there's a, there's a cosmic low end to the whole universe. When you worked with Smoot, mm. so George Smoot, did, is that something... I can't imagine the, the cross-pollination of what you can learn from each other. I mean, did, did he... A lot. Is that part of this? Yeah, Smoot, George was really helpful because when I met George, he was a fan and met him backstage, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know he won the Nobel for finding the, uh, you know, the cosmic background radiation. That was the kind of the afterglow of the Big Bang, about 400,000 years this side of 13.8 right. billion 
year, like years. And so George found that the afterglow. He said, we'd like to hear what it sounded like a million years ago or a billion mm -hmm. years ago. I can't remember what it was, but then he played me a sound, the vibratory impulses of the birth cries of the universe. And he had it on his computer, and I go, wow, that's cool, George. I want to, you know, tell me more. And so <laughs> George and I got to be friends, but it was about the rhythm. I mean, I, I spoke, you know, in vibratory terms with George about that, and, uh, and we worked on a documentary, and I, I dressed his super scientist uh, Astros down in someplace in Mexico. I spoke down there at one of his conferences, and... It was a great relationship. And now he's over at CERN, I understand. Some of those sounds from, let's say, the moon, the sun, the stuff that we can sort of identify with in this yeah. area of the universe, I guess, are those types of things that you can replicate on the monochord? You can, but and that's not the point. The point is to be able to find the, uh, the most cogent signals from the different radio telescopes from around the world. So that comes to us as radiation, as light. So I take that radiation and I put it through some powerful algorithms, and I turn, I change its form into sound, and then I perform, use them as samples, and I can play the sun, or the moon, or the earth, or any kind of physical ob objects in the universe, including right back to the cosmic background radiation. That's as far as we have seen, as far back as we've seen. We can't go beyond that yet. It's like a like a hiss and George found one millionth of one percent variation in that hiss and that's then that was how he found he put the pin the tail on his donkey he's a, a brilliant brilliant scientist Dr. Well, you know you, but you see that kind of rhythm in music I saw this uh, little gif on the internet the other day someone had taken a map of the world and put little pinpoints on it and kind of played it with like what are those little those machines that have little uh, metal prongs that yeah like will, an old piano and it played the entire map of the world yeah and it made sense it was musical it made sense and if you've ever seen like someone have taken like birds on telephone wires and they take a picture of it and they play it on the piano yeah. with the lines of it and it actually makes sense it's almost like well, built into all well, this yeah. the reason it makes yeah. sense is that music is just a miniature an example of what's happening out there. I mean, that's why every culture on the planet has a music. It's not a, a pleasure, it's a necessity, because we're coded for the, for the vibratory world, and that's how we speak, and that's how we com uh, communicate. And uh, there seems to be a basic need in humans to make sound, organized sound, which organized we call sound. organized sound, which we could call music. It's species-specific and species-defining. No other as as complex birds or whatever. This language is uh, is different. It, uh, it's strictly human. Again, this is part one. You definitely need to hear part two, and you can hear that at AboveTheBasement.com, where you can join us on Patreon, sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.